0: One of the largest entertainment companies in America is losing money. Why is that?
1: They've had a lot of LGBTQ-themed characters and just plot lines in a lot of their uh, recent materials. Plus, what's in the future over the battle for parental rights?
2: A parent's right has always been off-limits to intrusion and interference by government or even private parties.
0: And how does a Christian worldview and knowledge of God shape the kinds of laws we need?
3: everyone is equal made in the image of god and this god is not a respecter of persons the more internal laws the population has the less external laws they need
0: it's the weekend of september 2nd and 3rd i'm jeff shambly and this is the stand radio Of Element City. Following a series of films that bombed at the box office, the Walt Disney Company is now facing an almost $900 million loss. Recent films like Elemental, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Lightyear are among the ones that have either failed to meet box office expectations or completely tanked. We wanted to find out if this was bad marketing or bad entertainment.
1: I think it's, uh, for the most part, it's bad entertainment. Chris Woodward is the newscast director for American Family News. Um, They've had a lot of LGBTQ-themed characters and and just plot lines in a lot of their uh, recent materials uh, to the point that it's in your face and some parents feel like this is opening the door for conversations uh, their kids are not ready to have yet. Uh, Some parents don't want to see themselves Pouring money into this, assuming that Disney's just going to use it to continue making uh, television shows and films. The other thing is, um, some people I think are just um, kind of tired of Disney throwing the same stuff out there. And that's really, that argument could be made for a number of studios. Um, They're rebooting things, they're continuing to go down the same kinds of storylines. But this year specifically, I think a lot of it has to do with the materials and the themes they've had in their films and television shows.
0: In spite of tremendous success in years past and a brand name with worldwide appeal for families, Disney has been willing to put all of that on the line to meet the expectations of a highly vocal group of people.
1: The people that are pro-LGBTQ are looking for the publicity they're going to get from organizations like GLAAD, G-L-A-A-D. That's one of the pro-LGBTQ organizations out there that expect for Disney and other studios to produce things their way with characters from their walk of life. Um, And they want people to brag about them and talk about them positively on social media. Uh, But there's a whole lot of people out there on social media that don't want to see and hear these kinds of things Uh, And they say, quite frankly, you know, there's more of us than there are of them. Therefore, you need to get out of the culture war and just make family-friendly stuff for everybody so that way we can all take our kids to the movies or sit down in front of the television. ¶¶
0: Disney isn't the only company with economic problems. Anheuser-Busch, the parent company for Bud Light, and VF Corporation's The North Face have also taken a hit. Target, on the other hand, is not only suffering economically because of its marketing of LGBTQ merchandise to children, but some think it's treading on dangerous legal grounds when it comes to parental rights. We spoke with Steve Crampton, the assistant to AFA's general counsel, about a warning that's been sent to Target.
2: In uh, what I'd call a highly unusual development, we have uh, seven different state attorneys general writing to Target regarding their Pride, so-called, campaign, uh, and the possibility that they may have actually violated laws protecting children from harmful sexual material, uh, parental rights, and then on a separate front, even economic interests with regard to shareholders, namely the plummeting profit, actually now a loss margin due to their embrace of this highly controversial, politically unpopular position, advancing radical LGBTQ ideals.
0: Steve, this seems like a three-pronged approach in this warning.
2: Indeed. Um Now, let me uh, address the idea of the uh, harmful to minors element here. I really applaud the attorneys general for bringing this letter and even looking into this issue. It is something that uh, many of us have been concerned about for many years, dating back to the Introduction of sexually explicit materials, even in uh, middle school, sometimes elementary school, certainly uh, high school public libraries. But the problem that we encountered, and I expect the attorneys general here may encounter, is that ever since really the early 70s, and you know, the campaign reached back prior to that, the Uh, kind of pornography uh, end of industry uh, has kind of hijacked the First Amendment and created the uh, precedent at the Supreme Court level that sexually explicit material and uh, sexually explicit videos and so forth are really part of uh, the free speech prong of the First Amendment. And so that is really what opened the door, the Pandora's box, if you will, of our current society that's just overrun with sexuality, right? We've kind of got it coming out of our ears. And one of the consequences of that, I would call something of a minor revolution, has been the erosion of protection for children, because once you say that sexually uh, explicit material... Is suitable for adults, then you almost invariably, inevitably end up compromising those protections for children. And so the harmful to minors standard is a very technical one that uh, requires places really a high burden on the prosecution to show that there's not almost any redeeming social value to the materials they're reading and so on. So when you have those. You know, Heather has two mommy's books or uh, far worse now with transgender kind of materials and, and the like. The presumption is in favor of the legality of that material. So I think at the end of the day on that prong, the attorneys general face a, a very strong burden to hold Target accountable. Again, nevertheless, I think it's, it's an effort worth making here.
0: Do you think that this warning from these attorneys general uh, represents a new kind of liability for companies that promote these kinds of things to minors? I
2: certainly do. And I I think it's one we really need to reestablish. Folks have gotten away with almost anything in that realm for far too long. And I think a great segment of the American populace has reached the conclusion We've kind of overdone it here, and we need to pull back. So I think to that extent, the attorneys general here, which I'm thankful to say includes our attorney general from the state of Mississippi, uh, are really on the cutting edge of something, and I hope it's a trend that's going to continue
0: in what ways are parental rights being challenged in ways that we've not seen before around the country?
2: Yeah, and I really appreciate that element of this letter and and the challenge back to uh, Target. Parental rights have long been regarded and I think almost universally held as absolutely fundamental, sacrosanct in the law, a parent's right to educate to instruct, to communicate moral values in particular has always been off limits to uh, intrusion and interference by government or even private parties. But of late, with these really radical initiatives such as the transgender movement, we have seen liberal states, left-leaning states, wanting to set aside parental rights in the name of now basically uh, the freedom of the child to choose. And you'll recall that the U.N., for many, many years, there's been a, uh, a real push in the name of children's rights. Uh, Hillary Clinton, for one, was a champion of this, you know, back in the 90s. Um, but they never really got traction. But now we find ourselves at a time when the prospect of Uh, A child having a so-called right to define even his own gender uh, and then to undertake irreversible, radical surgery to change his biological self uh, without even notifying, much less obtaining the consent of parents, is presented as a perfectly logical, plausible, and legal alternative. So I mean, there's really a, an element of insanity in what we have embraced, all of which undertaken, as you know, Jeff, without really any firm scientific research and basis to justify these irreversible procedures in many cases. And so the parental rights prong of the attorney general's challenge here, I think, has particular merit. And the rest of the nation ought to be getting behind this. I mean, when you have decimated the parent-child relationship to such an extent that the parent is forbidden from even participating in the decision-making of this kind of radical surgical procedure, uh, we are really, uh, we've left the land of the rule of law and the recognition of what is essential to maintaining the social structure and the kind of material that gives way to our own civilization. We have uh, basically undertaken a suicide mission for our, our nation's well being.
0: In this letter that the attorneys general had written to the CEO of Target, they mentioned uh, children's protection, they mentioned parental authority, but they also alluded to something else that deals with the shareholders of the company. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, I, uh, this is, I think, a fascinating twist, too, Jeff. The attorneys general point out that their own states, in many cases, are also shareholders in Target. Um Which, of course, raises a side issue. Well, why are they continuing (laughs) to put their retirement monies in the hands of folks like Target when they are so uh, diametrically opposed to the moral values being advanced by Target? But nevertheless, as shareholders, our law recognizes that they uh, hold a, uh, a relationship with Target's board of directors such that Target has a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. Every corporation for profit exists for arguably one single purpose, to make a profit. It's all about money. So when you invest in a corporation like Target, you're entitled to a presumption that the directors are looking out for your own financial best interests. Well, we all have seen article after article lately of Target's plummeting profit line. In fact, they're losing money at what appears to be historic uh, numbers and percentages now. Why? Because they've elevated this political, moral, immoral issue above the interests of the shareholders in trying to make money. So ironically, corporations in the business world, which in past years we would say frustrated us because they didn't care about morality, they only cared about money, (laughs) now have gone full circle and care more about immorality than they do about making money. So the shareholder challenge may hold as much legal merit or more than any other prong of this uh, letter. I applaud them again for bringing that in a thoughtful, comprehensive sort of way.
0: Steve, thanks so much for being with us today and uh, helping us understand these things.
2: My great pleasure. Thank you so much, Jeff. God bless.
0: We wanted to remind you that Target is also under fire for allowing men into women's restrooms and changing facilities. Be sure and visit afa.net slash Target to find out more and join 1.5 million others who've taken the pledge not to shop at Target until these policies change. Up next, celebrating the signing of America's founding document. Constitution Day is September 17th. It commemorates the formation and signing of the U.S. Constitution on that day in 1787. How are we faring as a country when it comes to understanding our Constitution, and for that matter, the very form of government we have here in the U.S.? One man who's dedicated himself to helping people understand America's heritage is William J. Federer. He's a speaker, best-selling author, and founder of AmericanMinute.com. Bill, welcome to The
3: Stand Radio. It's great to be with you.
0: Why don't we start with an overview of how we got the Constitution to begin with?
3: Well, when you zoom out and look at all of recorded human history, the most common form of government is kings. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger, because with military advancements, kings can kill more people. The weapon improves, but it's that same fallen nature, Cain, Kill, and Abel. And with technological advancements, kings can track more people. Um, But at the time of America's founding, the King of England had the biggest empire that planet Earth had ever seen. The King of England was a globalist. He was a one world government guy. And America's founders didn't like that. So they broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. Where did they get this idea? From the New England pastors who got the idea from the Bible, what part of the Bible that first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. And so what stands out really clearly is this about 1400 BC to around 1000 BC, you have Israel coming out of Egypt where they're illiterate slaves and suddenly they get downloaded this most unique form of government where there's no king. And it works because every single citizen is taught the law And every citizen is personally accountable to God to follow the law. And it worked until the priest stopped teaching the law. Then every man did what was right in their own eyes. And it turns into this chaos with concubines being raped and and all the people go to Samuel the prophet. And they say, the self-government system's not working anymore. We want to be like the other countries. We want a king. And so the kings of Europe look to the Bible for their authority. Sure. But they look to the anointed King Saul and on where the Calvinist Puritans that founded New England looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the pre-King Saul period, this covenant form of government where you have millions of people and no king, and it works because everybody's taught the law and everybody's personally accountable to God to follow the law. And so the covenant form of government turned into our constitution. And so there's a great quote from Oz Guinness, and he said, the American constitution is a secularized form of covenant. Covenant lies behind constitution. So our this covenant form of government where everybody's involved, we rule ourselves without a king, turns into our U.S. Constitution where we have no king. And guess what? The word federal is Latin for covenant. We have a covenant form of government where there's millions of us and we can rule ourselves without a king. It's a bottom up versus top down. And so people that say, oh, I don't like the constitution. It's like the only other alternative is to let power reconcentrate back into the hands of a king.
0: Bill, a recent survey of 1,000 Americans showed that around 40% couldn't name a single right that's guaranteed in the First Amendment. Why do you think overall knowledge about our Constitution
3: is in decline today? Because I think those that want to go back in the direction of centralized control don't want us to give any pushback. So think of our Constitution as a genetically engineered seed. You take the power of a king ruling and you separate it into three branches. The legislative branch makes the laws. The uh, executive branch enacts it into law and the judicial branch judges the laws. And you take the power of a king ruling, and you separate it into three branches and you pit them against each other. One of the examples I use is I'm one of 11 kids I had five brothers, five sisters. And my mom had made brownies one time and they ate them all up except one. And my little brother and I come in from playing. And my mom says, well, one of you cuts it and the other gets to pick the first piece. Well, it works pretty good because the one cutting it doesn't know which piece they're going to get. So they want to cut it exactly equal. It works really good unless you did it with my little brother because he spit on him and got both pieces. Of course, I punched him. But uh, but imagine a big brownie, three hungry boys, you give me to job. First one's job is to trace out on the brownie where it's going to be cut. He doesn't know which piece he's going to end up with, so he wants to trace those pieces exactly equal. Second one's job is to take the knife and cut it, execute it, enact it. And and then the third one's job is to judge and see who gets which piece. So you have the legislative branch laying out the law, the executive branch signing it and enacting it into law, and the judicial branch judging law. It's a stroke of genius where the greedy, hungry tummies cause them to be honest. So our constitution is a way where selfish, greedy people keep other selfish, greedy people from becoming selfish and greedy. It's like a pastor giving a Sunday school assignment. Design a system of government where sinners keep other sinners from sinning. In other words, James Madison said, there's no angels on earth to govern us. There's no people that are impervious to temptation. I mean, even if a good Christian person is in office and they have a brother or sister that needs help, they're going to be tempted to want to funnel a little extra to their family and friends. And if there's somebody that they don't like, they're going to be tempted to want to use their position to hold back. And it gets discretionary. And the saying is, he who holds the purse strings has the power. And so the temptation is there's no angels on earth to govern us. So all we have is sinful, selfish people. And so the idea is you take the selfishness in one branch and you do a three-way tug-of-war where they pull against the other two. Greed checks greed, ambition checks ambition. And um, so uh, it's underneath of our constitution is the biblical concept that we are fallen creatures and we're selfish and therefore we need checks and balances um, and uh, and that's what our constitution is,
0: Bill. What do you think the reason is that the American Constitution has endured for as
3: long as it has? Well, um, the the concept of, of seed and soil. So uh, the again the Constitution view it as a genetically engineered seed that took six thousand years of taking power of a king and, and gradually limiting it and separating it. But what do you do with seeds? You plant it in soil. Question: Does the type of soil you plant the seed in? have any relation to the harvest you're gonna get. Well, yeah, if you plant a really good seed in a gravel parking lot or in a sandy beach, uh, it's not gonna produce. And so you take, you get rid of Saddam Hussein and you give the Iraq a constitution very similar to ours. And in one election, they vote in Sharia law on the death penalty for leaving Islam and so forth. And we scratch our heads and think, hey, we had guys fought and die uh, to give them freedom, but here they are voting back, why didn't it work? it's an islamic country and islam has no concept of equality um you know women are not equal to men uh, infidels aren't equal to believing muslims um with the soviet union uh, fell and berlin wall comes down and we have people going over and helping these former soviet republics um, set up governments with constitutions very similar to ours and what happens well they end up getting taken over by the black market the mafia the organized crime and we scratch our heads thinking why is their harvest different than ours well you planted the seed in a soil that had 70 years of atheism plowed into it. And atheism says, there's no God, there's no eternal life. This life is all there is. So do whatever you can to get ahead. Uh, In America, we planted this seed uh, in a soil that was 98% Judeo-Christian at the time of our country's founding. 98% Protestant, 1% Catholic, There were 30,000 Catholics in a country of 3 million people and one-tenth of a percent Jewish, 3,000 Jews in a country of 3 million people. And then there's an Irish potato. I read through every one of the 13 original state constitutions. Nine of them required officeholders to be Protestant to hold state office. And then there's an Irish potato famine, early 1800s, a lot of Catholics come into the country. And many of those states change it from requiring you to be Protestant to just being a plain Christian, like in... 1835, North Carolina changed from Protestant to Christian and that allowed Catholics to hold office. And then in the middle 1800s, states like Maryland changed their constitution to allow Jews to hold office. It says that every office holder had to be a Christian. And if the party shall profess to be a Jew, the declaration shall be of a belief in a future state of rewards and punishments. And, um, but even in 1965, the polls showed that 93% of Americans were Christian in 1965, 24% Protestant, you know, 16% Baptist, and, and, uh, and 2% Jewish, and, um, but we've been going downhill. But we've planted this seed of self-government in a country that had a soil, a belief system that was Judeo-Christian, and that boils down to everyone is equal, made in the image of God, and this God is not a respecter of persons doing to others as you would have them doing to you. So it's a country with self-government so we can get by with less external governments like a teeter-totter. The more um, internal laws the population has, the less external laws they need. You remove internal laws and you teach kids there's no right, there's no wrong. You can kill the baby in the womb. You don't even know if you're a boy or girl anymore. And these kids go out of the school and they're borderless. They have guidelines. It's just how they feel. And then then it turns into random violence. And the people say, government, we don't have any more internal restraints. We need you to come in with enough power to restore with external restraints. And you revert back to a king.
0: So there's a correlation between our understanding of God and, and what we can expect about our Constitution?
3: Yet John Adams said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. George Washington, in his draft of his inaugural, he said, no wall of words, no mountain of parchment can retain a country's freedom when the people are morally corrupt. And so it's the same thing that parents wrestle with. You have a teenager, you give them the car keys, you say, you're a good kid, you have internal morals, I can trust you, you come home whenever you think it's right. But if you don't follow those internal morals and you drink and drive and party, you're going to be pulled over by the police and put in jail behind bars. So, teenager, you are going to be controlled, either voluntarily from the inside or forcibly from the outside. Same way with a nation. We're either going to be voluntarily controlled with internal morals, or we're going to teach the kids there are no right and wrong. There's no morals. There's no God. You can feel like a fuzzy anything. And it turns into lawlessness. And then everybody says, government... Step restore order and the government says, okay, first thing we're going to do is take away your weapons. Then we're going to take away your freedom of speech because you may set say something that sets somebody off. And then we're going to track you. And then we're going to do and we're going to put up metal detectors everywhere. And we're going to have more external restraints. Why? Because the population has given up the internal restraints. And then one other key feature that we borrow from ancient Israel is what would motivate you to follow an internal restraint? Well, Israel had the key ingredient. There is a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair. He is going to hold you accountable in the future. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country really believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police. Women can go anywhere without fear. You don't have to lock your doors. It's everybody walking around with this awareness that God is watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. That motivates us to follow these internal morals so we can get by in a country with few external restraints.
0: Bill, thanks so much for being with us today and uh, sharing some clarity on this issue.
3: Oh, thank you, Jeff. A- anytime, anytime.
0: You can contact William J. Federer at AmericanMinute.com, where you can also sign up for his free daily email. Coming up next week on The Stand Radio, we'll remember 9-11. Dr. Jerry Newcomb will give us some practical ways we can instill patriotism in our families and culture, and will give some much needed encouragement to grandparents. Dr. Josh Mulvahill will join us to lay out the biblical mandate for grandparents. We hope you'll join us. The Stand Radio is a weekly roundup of important matters concerning our culture, our faith, and our families. You can get a more in-depth look at today's topics at afa.net slash the You can also sign up for a free six-month subscription to The Stand magazine. It's a great way to stay informed on the latest from the American Family Association and learn what you can do to advance the gospel. Until next time, I'm Jeff Shambly. Thanks for listening.